Thank you for joining us. This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you and shalom. Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lionel Lamb Ministries, and welcome to our study of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we are in the midst of the study. In fact, we are ready to go to Matthew chapter 14. And if you would join me there, let's see what else Yeshua is going to be teaching his disciples. Matthew chapter 14, beginning of verse 1. And at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Yeshua and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. For when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in the prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they regarded him as a prophet. So I want to make sure you understand the event of the death of John the Baptist has already happened, but it's being explained to us as to what did happen. And so Herod, when he hears about Yeshua and what he's doing, he's thinking, oh my goodness, this must be John the Baptist resurrected, and he's got these miraculous powers, and he's out leading the people, and he's going to cause all kinds of trouble against me, and so for, for what I did. And so he's kind of speaking judgment on himself, thinking that's what's going on. And so that's what's happening here. It's an explanation of what happened with Herod and how did he end up killing uh, John the Baptist. Verse 6. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of uh, Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Thereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. And having been prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. And although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given uh, because of his oath and because of his dinner guests. And he sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took away the body and buried it, and they went and reported to Yeshua the events that had happened. Verse 13, Now when Yeshua heard it, he withdrew from there in a boat to a lonely place by himself. When the multitudes heard of it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when he went ashore, he saw a great multitude and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. And when it was evening, the disciples came to him saying, The place is desolate and the time is already passed. So send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Yeshua said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, what we're talking about in the latter part of the day, you know, approaching the time of sundown, that's when you would cease your labors, and that's when you'd have your, your final meal. And so that's what's taking place here. They were saying, send the people away so they have time to be able to go get some food because when are they going to eat? I kind of like this uh, from one perspective, and that is, these disciples think the way I think. Um, when I go to an event, you know, you know what? I'm I'm a kind of a guy. 
And so when I go to a vet or stay at a place or whatever, you know what one of the first thoughts that comes to mind is, where am I going to eat supper at? Where, where am I going to get fed at? Uh, how will I get fed? Where, where will I go? You know, that, that's kind of how I plan my day. I hate to say that. Uh, you probably criticize me for that. But that, I think a lot of men are like that. I think that's a normal way men think, and it certainly is the way I've come to think. So I identify with these disciples. Hey, hey, you know, what are we going to do about supper? You know, in the midst of this. Well, then he turns the tables on them, and he says, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. What? Me? You know, I'm, I'm the one that's in need of something to eat, and you're asking me to give them? That's ministry. Ministry is when you learn how to give to others when you yourself don't have it, and you rely on the resources of the Lord. And he said to them, we have here only five loaves and two fishes. Obviously, that's not enough. I mean, that's not even going to carry the disciples. That's what some little kid brought that his mom packed for him. That'll take care of the kid. What are we going to do about all these other people? What are we going to do about disciples? What, what is Yeshua supposed to eat? He said, bring them here to me. And ordering the multitudes to recline on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food, breaking the loaves, and he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitudes, and they all ate and were satisfied, and they picked up whatever was left over of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. And there were about 5,000 men who ate aside from the women and children. I want you to take notice of them. It was more than 5,000. Way more than 5,000. It was 5,000 men, not counting women and children. So how big was that assembly he fed? Probably closer to ten to 12,000 probably closer to that. So whenever I hear people, oh, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 5,000 men, but there was a much greater feeding that took place there. Now, I'm not quite sure exactly how he did it. He took the loaves, he blessed, he break, <clears throat> and then maybe he'd break it again, and he'd break it again, and he'd break it again, and, you know, that's how they, and the fish, he divided the fish and, and distributed it. And when they got all done, the bread, there were 12 full baskets for it. 5,000 men fed, 12 full baskets left over. Everybody's satisfied. The, um, do you remember the, remember the story about when Yeshua first went to Cana at the, at the wedding? Do you remember they ran out of wine and his mother called him over? and said, hey, um, you know, quietly, they, they need more wine. And Yeshua said, what am I going to do with you, woman? You see, I think he had done this multiplication of food before, and Mary knew he could have, he had the ability to do that. So when they ran out of wine at the wedding, says, hey, uh, can you whip up some more wine for them? They need, they need wine. So this apparently was a capability that Yeshua had that even goes back before his public ministry started. 
his mother somehow knows about this. Now he's, and this is where the public now is going to learn about what he can do. Can you imagine if that you could do that? You could break bread and make all the bread you need for you and your friends and so forth. You wouldn't worry about where we're going to have supper anymore, would you? You wouldn't worry about that. That, that wouldn't be a concern for you. That wouldn't be the primary goal or plan of the day because you you know that you have adequate. You know that your need is met when it comes to basic food. That's the way Yeshua is walking around with his disciples. He's trying to teach them. He's trying to teach them you can feed them. And my, 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 that is incredible. You know what? This This ability to make food... You know, I'm thinking that in the future, during the Great Tribulation, when the world is completely upside down and full of distress, and there's probably a shortage of food, and they, by the way, it says a lot of people are going to die from famine, but the believers make it. I'm wondering if maybe this skill, this ability, is going to be made manifest to us, the Tribulation saints, at that time. And maybe that's how we eat sometimes, is uh, it's, it's multiplied to us. Verse 22, and, um, and immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. And when he sent the multitudes away, after he had sent the multitudes away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. I have been in the land of Israel where we think the feeding of the 5,000 was at. And it's down low, and it's at the bank of the Sea of Galilee. And if you get in a boat and you start heading for Capernaum, which is to the north, there is a mountain, a very large mountain. It's part of the area near Tiberias. But it's kind of to the south and to the west. And by the way, if you were going to take a trek up the mountain, you, it would take you probably a couple hours to get up there uh, if you were going to walk up there. But it's in the opposite direction of where the disciples are going. So he sends the boat with the disciples back to Capernaum with the 12 baskets of bread. And he, after he dismisses the multitude and tells them to go home, he goes the other way up the mountain. You have the scene. Okay, they're they're separated a uh, considerable distance from one another at this point. Verse 24, but the boat was already many stadia away from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. For you to go to Capernaum, um, it, it, it's kind of an egg-shaped sea. You actually travel out into the sea and then kind of cut an arc over to it to get to Capernaum. And so they had gone out into the middle of the water so that they could catch the wind, you know, so that the sail and the wind, they weren't rowing, they were using a sail and they were trying to catch the wind off the Sea of Galilee that would send them out there. So that forced them out into the middle of the sea, away from the bank, and so they could catch the wind for them to sail up there. And verse 25, and in the fourth watch of the night, this is like in the early morning, very early morning, he came to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were frightened and saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. 
But immediately Yeshua spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter answered him, said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out to you on the water. He said, Come. Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Yeshua. But seeing the wind, he became afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. Um, and immediately Yeshua stretched out his hand, took hold of him, and said to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got in the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were uh, in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret, which is that's, that's like the Sea of Galilee. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent into all the surrounding district and brought to him all the sick. And they began to entreat him that he might just touch the fringe of his cloak, and as many as touched were cured. The um, Let's go back to that story a little bit, because I've been on the Sea of Galilee, and I and uh, had the opportunity to teach this before, actually on a boat with other brethren. And there's one thing that has always uh, kind of struck me about this whole story. Do I have a, uh, a problem with Yeshua walking on water? No. I mean, he can heal things, do all kinds of things, but why not walk on water? But the part that you need to know about that is, let me take you back to Moses and the crossing of the Red Sea. When Moses uh, was blocked by the mountain, the sea, and Pharaoh's chariots were coming, the people reacted to this whole situation in a variety of ways. Some said, let's fight. Uh, some said, um, let's uh, act like it's this is not happening. Some said, okay, let's turn ourselves back in. We'll be slaves for the rest of our lives for Pharaoh. Uh, and they went through a variety of things. But there was one, um, and his name was Nakshan. He was the leader of the tribe of Judah. He was the military captain of the tribe of Judah. And when he had heard that the Lord had said, go forth, he thought, this is the traditional teaching, he thought, well, we're just going to walk on the water and walk across. So he stepped into the water. Well, as you can imagine, he sunk in the water. He got wet. Now, the rest of the story goes how the Lord parted the sea and all of Israel walked across on dry land. But there's a kind of a phrase we say sometimes, yes, Israel walked across on dry land, but Nachshon's feet were wet because he was the first one who started to go out before the parting of the Red Sea. But one of the things that came out of that was there was a lot of interesting discussion and speculations about the coming Messiah and what he's able to do. And as I've shared with you before, yes, he would heal a blind man, but it wouldn't be just a man who had had sight, lost his sight. He would heal a blind man that was born blind, that his eye never had worked. He'll, he'll give sight to that man. He'll heal a lame man that was born lame. The, 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 the limb or leg never did work to begin with. He'll heal that one. The leper, the incurable, he'll cure that. Well, they also had this. When the Messiah comes, he'll be able to walk on water where Nakshan couldn't. 
So in this testimony, when Yeshua comes walking out on the Sea of Galilee, these disciples know about that teaching. They've heard the teaching before. That when the Messiah comes, he'll be able to walk on water. When God saved the children of Israel there from Pharaoh and brought them out. That's the power of his salvation. He'll have the ability to walk on water uh, for it. So they see that. And of course, uh, Peter, you know, he wants to walk on water. Why would, why would he think he could walk on water? Well, you see this understanding if the Messiah can walk on water and they thought that was how they were going to get across the Red Sea. Well, weren't they all going to walk on water? So Peter's like, well, let me walk on water. Well, he gets there, but then he starts looking around and then he gets his eyes off the Lord. He's not believing the Lord again. And all of a sudden he starts to sink. So it is possible to walk on water just like the Lord did. But it's another one of those things about you really have to have a good relationship with the Lord. You better believe. You have to have faith. You know, which begs the question, if we really had truly powerful faith, what else could we do? Well, I'll tell you what Yeshua said. That if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move. That's not just a metaphor. That is him teaching how powerful faith is. Most of us only have just enough faith so that we get saved by the skin of our teeth. By the way, you do know that teeth don't have any skin. You know, it's, even the Lord does that part. But the day is coming when our faith is going to be increased. The day is coming when we're in the kingdom, that we'll find out what that real faith is about. And I can only imagine what it's going to be like to live with the Lord in the kingdom in that day when we have uh, that kind of capability uh, for it. All right, let's continue on. Verse uh, chapter 15 now. Then some of the Pharisees and scribes came to Yeshua from Jerusalem, now, you remember, Yeshua's had various discussions with scribes and Pharisees. Those guys were up in the regions where he was at, in the northern part of Israel. They obviously have gone back to Jerusalem, told other scribes and Pharisees back there, hey, we got this guy up here in the Galilee area, and by the way, we can't contend with him, and so forth. And I'm sure they probably had the discussion, well, they haven't dealt with us yet. We're from Jerusalem. So it's kind of like the experts of the Pharisees and scribes that are coming from Jerusalem, they're going to come up and they're, they're going to deal with Yeshua now. So they make the trip up there and they begin to challenge him and question him. Verse two, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and he said to them, And why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever shall say to his father or mother, any time, anything of mine you might have, have been helped, 
has has been given to God, for it is he is not to honor his father or his mother, and thus you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Now let me explain what that's all about. Uh, the Pharisees had taught a tradition because people would bring gifts to the temple, okay, to bring. Uh, things to the temple. But what they taught them was to make a pledge to bring gifts. So they would have a young lamb that would be born. And so the guy would, I'm going to make a pledge to give this lamb to the Lord. At that moment, that was then called Korban. And that meant it's dedicated to be given as a gift to the Lord. And if somebody comes along and says, hey, I need food, I need help, well, that lamb is off limits. I can't, I can't share the lamb with you because that's Korban. That's, that was the tradition and the teaching that they gave. Well, he's giving an instance where it's the man's actual father and mother that is in need of something, but he can't give it to them, uh, can't honor his father and mother with giving it to him because it's been designated as Korban. And they're saying, you have invalidated, he's saying to the Pharisees, by setting this system up, by setting up this tradition, you've literally invalidated the strength of honor your father and your mother. I want to remind everybody, honor your father and mother is one of the Ten Commandments. This commandment was actually spoken by the mouth of God from the mountain, and the people heard the mouth of God say it. But these Pharisees are saying, well, regardless of what the mouth of God has said from the mountain, we have this little traditional thing here. You make this pledge, and it can only be used for korban. You can't use it for another need. And Yeshua is taking issue with him and said, how is it, you know, they're questioning him, why aren't you following the tradition of the elders? Why aren't you following the instructions that we've given uh, to people how to observe the faith? And he says, how come you won't listen to what your heavenly father said? Uh, verse 7, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Isaiah saw it in his day that it was beginning to take shape. It's still happening in Yeshua's day, and he quotes from Isaiah and says, See, this is what's happening. You prefer the precepts of men over the commandments of God. And I'm sure you've heard that phrase used by Yeshua multiple times. Uh, where he was explaining. Verse 10, And after he called the multitude to him, he, he said, Hear and understand. Now what enters into the mouth defiles the man, but what not what enters into the mouth defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. What he's basically saying is, the Pharisees have told you that if you don't do this ritual washing, when you grab a piece of bread and you eat it, you've defiled yourself. He said, I'm saying to you, what you put in your mouth doesn't defile you. What comes out of your mouth is what defiles you. When you speak air, when you speak against the Lord, that's what defiles you, not what you put in your mouth to eat. Uh, verse, uh, verse 12, Then the disciples came and said to him, 
Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? But he answered, and he said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did plant shall be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind, and if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into the pit. And Peter answered and said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes in the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Um... Judaism has a lot of little ritual things. The ritual things, while they may enhance some of your understanding of certain things, they're not essential to keeping the commandments. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. And this is very common amongst Messianic brethren. The commandment which says to remember to keep the Sabbath holy, well, exactly how do you, what do you do to, well, let's remember to keep the Sabbath separate from the other days of the week. So traditionally, what happens is there is a ceremony, a little ritual ceremony called Kiddush at the beginning of the Sabbath. The one at the end of Sabbath is called Havdalah. At the beginning of the Sabbath, the, the mother prepares the home, and she's the one who lights the candles, the Sabbath candles. And in her prayer, she says the words, the traditional prayer is, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has commanded us to kindle the light of Sabbath. There is no commandment that said, kindle the light of the Sabbath. The commandment said, remember to keep the Sabbath holy. So what they've done is they've taken that vague commandment, not quite sure exactly what to do, and they've translated it into a simple step of that will stop, will recognize Sabbath at the beginning, will light the candles, and so he's, they're saying, we've been commanded to keep the Sabbath holy, and this is our way of doing it. You're not actually commanded to light the candles, you're commanded to take note of the Sabbath. And so, in effect, it's still the same thing, but we use these words in which most people go, oh, wait a minute, I'm, I'm, I'm not commanded to keep the, the light the candles on Sabbath. Do you have to light candles on Sabbath? No, but you do have to remember to keep the Sabbath holy. Now, how do you do that? Um, and when the Sabbath ends, there's a little ceremony called Kiddush, uh, or excuse me, uh, Havdalah, in which that we have a cup and a saucer, and we put wine in the cup, we say the blessing, we pour some of the wine out into the saucer, and then this multi-twist candle, where there's like two or more candles coming together that form one flame. When we light that candle, we say, only God knows how to separate the, the flame of two candles. And therefore, God is the only one who can separate the Sabbath from the other days of the week. You know, we get to the start of Sabbath, we get to be, let's see, it's, it's kind of dusk. Uh, is this Sabbath yet? 
We're not in Sabbath. If you want to follow the Talmud, they'll tell you you got to see three stars at night and so forth. But what if it's cloudy? What are you going to do then? Um, it really comes down to just just keep it. Don't get all complicated about the thing. And anyways, the Havdalah ceremony, they will take that candle that has that flame and they'll extinguish it to bring Sabbath to a close uh, you, with the spillage that had come out of the cup in the saucer. So we light a candle to start, we extinguish a candle at the end. That's just simply a way of trying to keep the commandment to remember to keep the Sabbath holy or separate from the other days. The um, And then the final thing we do is we have a little cup with some spice in it, usually some cloves or something like that, which is a sweet fragrance, and you smell that. And, and smell is a very powerful memory thing. So because we're commanded to remember while well, we take a sniff of that, and that's the final thing of Sabbath, we're remembering the sweetness of Sabbath with the idea in mind that we'll remember to keep it again next week. It's just a simple little tradition, a simple little thing. Now, if anybody were to take that and say, this little tradition, oh, you didn't do Kiddush, so you're not keeping the Sabbath, is ridiculous. That's when a tradition is now being chosen over the actual commandment. What Yeshua came and taught us about the Torah was to set aside the traditions and precepts of men and just learn to keep the commandments. Just follow the commandments. And by the way, let me go ahead and add into this for you. Um, in every commandment of God, there are three parts. There is the actual objective, you know, what did it, what was commanded, do this or don't do this. Then there are two other things that go with it. There's a standard and there's a condition. The standard, do this, but do it to what level is the next question. How much of that? Or, or if you stop, you don't do it, is it all the way? Is, what's the standard for it? And then you have the condition. For example, uh, if you're commanded to do something, is it, and it's supposed to be done in the daytime, well, obviously you can't do it at nighttime. So if you try to keep the commandment at nighttime, but it's required to be done in the daytime, well, then you're, you're not doing it you're correctly. You've got to do it in the daytime. You have to do it according to the condition to give. Most of the commandments of the Lord do not specify the standard or the condition. Very few of them do. Um, the, um, uh, the commandment of Passover has standards and conditions. You will keep the Passover. You will bring this lamb in, and you will have a feast with your family. You will do it on the eve of the 14th, okay? You will eat of it, but you will not discard it. Anything that's left over, you'll burn Okay, and the conditions are that you will do this, um, you know, in this month at this time, and you'll do it with unleavened bread. So that's one where there truly is an objective, there's a standard, there's a condition uh, according to it. But a lot of other commandments, they'll give you the objective, but they don't give you standards and conditions. It's up to you to decide what is appropriate for you to do and to what standard and to what condition it's to be done. 
I live in a modern society, um, and the 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 commandment that was given on Sabbath about don't kindle a fire. Well, in when that command was given, the idea of kindling a fire is you go out and gather firewood, you make tinder, you get there, you rub sticks, you hit flint, whatever, and and it it there's quite a bit of effort involved in lighting a fire. And he said, don't do it. Don't do this labor's task of, of starting a fire. Well, here I live in the modern times, and if I want light, I just flip the switch on, electricity puts it on. Um, if I want to cook with fire, I've got a gas range. I just turn this knob on, and i got gas range. Um, if I have my barbecue grill, you know, I, I go out there, and I turn the gas on, I have a gas grill, and I hit the spark and the flame, and it heats up the grill. Not understanding, you know, the standards and the conditions, we just told don't kindle a fire on Sabbath. I myself have given myself the standard and the condition that says on Sabbath, I will not light my gas grill. That's my way of, Lord, until you show me differently, that's how I'm going to definitely positively want to follow the commandment. But again, I'm not sure if that's adequate or not adequate. The Lord hasn't shown me differently. But I put the standard on myself. Does the Torah say, by the way, in modern times, don't light gas grills on Sabbath? Of course not. I'm dealing with the conditions that I'm living in in the day that I'm living. So I'm figuring out how to meet the objective of the commandment in the day and the time that I live. And the Lord gives us the freedom to do that. He gives us that freedom. What if you're an astronaut and you're in orbit on the space station around the earth? When is Sabbath for you? When, uh, when, when are you going to? You're, you're in very interesting conditions. You don't even have a normal day. You're going around the earth, you know, a couple of times a day. So, you know, you've got multiple sunrises and sunsets, you know. Uh, obviously, you would have to pick a reference back on the earth because the commandments were always intended to be done on the earth. And you'd have to figure out how to, how to do that if you wanted to remember to keep the Sabbath. You'd, you'd have to come up with a way where you set the standards because you're in unusual conditions. And by the way, life is full of that. Did you know there's a whole bunch of commandments that don't even apply to you? If you're a man, all the commandments that are given to women don't apply to you, and vice versa. There's a whole bunch of commandments that are given to the priests. If you're not a priest, you don't have to worry about those commandments. And depending on where you're at in your station of life, your age category and so forth, <clears throat> and who you are, you don't have to keep all the commandments. There's just certain commandments that apply to you. This is not a grievous thing to keep the commandments of the Lord. This actually works. But my church brethren go too far and say, nobody has to keep the commandments. And that's where they go too far. Don't listen to that. Do not listen to the precepts of men. Go learn the commandments for yourself. 
Go back to what Moses has instructed. Go back to what Yeshua has taught about the instruction of Moses. And this portion of Matthew 15, Yeshua is correcting the Pharisees and their precepts that are opposed to the commandments uh, from it. Um, so when he explains to the disciples that defilement is what comes from the heart, not what goes in the mouth in the form of something you may eat. He proceeds here now. Verse 21, And Yeshua went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. Behold, a Canaanite woman came out from the region and began to cry and say, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came to him and kept asking him, saying, Send her away, for she is shouting out after us. And he answered, and he said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Yeshua is saying, My task is the work in Israel. I am just happened to be here for a moment, kind of for a little respite. I'm here resting up before I go back. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and he said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And Yeshua answered and said to her, O woman, your faith is great. Be it done to you as you wish, and your daughter will be healed at once. The healing is really the faith of the person. The Lord just simply helps you to announce it, to proclaim it correctly. Yeshua was in an area outside the land of Israel. This woman had the faith to be healed, and he participated with her to be healed. He did not go there specifically to heal the people. Now, I know there's a lot of people um, who, you know, would take offense to some of this. You should not take offense to this. There, God has a very specific plan about certain things that have to be done in a certain way. And the work of redemption isn't just to anybody else's standard. It's to God's standard. And Yeshua knew that the work of redemption he had to do had to be done specifically in the land of Israel at that time. As a result of the work of redemption, as a result of the gift of the Holy Spirit, now it's given to all of mankind, but it wasn't given at that time. It needed to be done this way. So don't take issue with Yeshua over this. He's not being bigoted. He's simply doing the work of redemption the way it's supposed to be done. All right, that brings us to the conclusion of our lesson here. And at our next program, we will start with Matthew 15, verse 29. In the meantime... Shalom to all of you.